I think you all know my name already by now and said it many times. Uh, yeah, I'm born in Germany. I grew up in Frankfurt and went to, I didn't know what I was going to do as a young man being 19 years old. And a friend of mine applied to a photography school in Berlin and said, hey, um, why did you become a photographer? I'm applying to this photo school. The education is for free in Germany. It's just always very hard to be accepted. Uh, it was like 800 people applying for 40 uh, spots. And um, I had to call my friend who already lived in Berlin and ask him how to develop film and um, how to do printing. And so I did my own film processing. The first couple of rolls of film, I forgot to fix them because I didn't know you had to fix film <laughs> after you develop it. And then, um, I, you know, we had to make this portfolio for the school. And for some reason, they took me and not my friend, which was uh, <laughs> Uh, quite a little bit of a problem also because then I had to move in with him because I didn't have any place to stay in Berlin. <laughs> and um, he became a very successful filmmaker. So it all worked out for both of us. And my school in Berlin was a two-year program, very technical. It was much, very much like a, a school. You had to be there at 8 o'clock and you had an hour of uh, optics, an hour of math, and an hour of English. And it was very, very structured. It wasn't very um, artistic compared to most other photography schools, especially here in this country. But what I took away from it was a really basic knowledge of all the technical aspects of photography and um, cameras. Um, I then worked for a still life photographer for a little bit in Frankfurt and then for an advertising photographer in Hamburg, um, which made me realize that being a photography assistant is um, pretty much a 14, 15 hour a day job oftentimes. I basically ended up sleeping in the studio many of nights because we would be finished at like 2 o'clock in the morning and he would expect me to have uh, breakfast ready at 7 a.m. Um, so that didn't work out for too long. After four or five months, I, um, uh, he let me go. <laughs> I was very bummed out, but I think uh, he could tell that he was grinding me to the ground and that I wasn't uh, very happy. So after that, I thought, oh, at least if I work as an assistant, I felt it's very important to work for other photographers first to see. I, I, I knew how little, you know, many photographers go to school and think they've seen and heard and know everything. But the reality is that working with somebody who's working professionally every day, you can learn so many things. So realizing that I know very, knowing that I know very little, I thought at least I should work for a photographer whose work I really admire and uh, that inspires me. So if I work that many hours a day, you know, I can take something away from myself and, and learn something in a direction that I'm interested in. So I decided to come to New York. I had uh, I worked in a bar for a while to save up some money. I came to New York and called up Irving Penn. <laughs> and because my English was so bad that um, I think his studio manager thought, oh, this might be an important phone call. Um, <laughs> put me on the phone with Irving Penn and I tried to explain to him how much I would love to work with him. He was very polite and said he doesn't need any assistance at this point. Then um, I pursued Annie Leibovitz. I wrote her res uh, resumes and pictures and um, that didn't go anywhere either. So then I thought, hmm, maybe let's give Stephen Meisel, this fashion photographer, a call. Never heard back from them. So after six weeks, I was broke, went back to Germany and uh, had to re-strategize and heard about a grant that is for people that have a non-academic education because there's two years of photo school. In Germany, it's more in the direction of an apprenticeship. Uh, it's more you're like, you know, learning a trade. It is legally seen more as a trade than as actually a, 
uh, higher education. So I got this grant, $700 a month. I came back and then I just bugged Andy Leibowitz as long as I could until finally the studio manager said, oh, why don't you come by for an interview? And uh, she had just fired her third assistant. And um, her first assistant liked me. Maybe he wasn't threatened by me because my English still wasn't very good. And he felt like, oh, this guy knows a lot about all these technical things. He can kind of back me up uh, lighting-wise and, and technically. So I started as third assistant. It didn't take too long, and the second assistant was gone. And um, another half a year later, so the first assistant was gone. So then I was um, there being the first assistant. That was a very intense experience because Annie gives all of her assistants a lot of responsibility. So as a first assistant, you're in charge of lighting. And um, it just means walking into an apartment or a studio uh, uh, outside. And you have to make it look the way she likes it to look. And um, if you don't succeed quickly, uh, there is not much patience. So um, it was a trial by error. I left after three years on very good terms. She threw this big goodbye party for me. Um, Susan Sontag was still alive. So she was, uh, Susan Sontag organized these dreadlock wigs. So Annie and Susan and everybody in the studio, it was like a surprise party, was wearing dreadlock wigs. Uh, it was very sweet. And uh, yeah, then came the hard part, <laughs> going out on your own as a photographer. Um, <clears throat> and I was always, it took me many years to uh, get to appreciate Bernd and Hilla Becker, these two German photographer couple. You might have seen the work they basically photographed 300 water towers or hundreds of water towers and put them together in books or in shows. Basically grids with just water tower or other industrial um, details. Um, and first I went in the museum in Frankfurt and saw this whole wall of water towers. Every single water tower photographed in the same style, the same lighting. And I was like, how can that be so interesting? <laughs> I don't get it. And um, years later, I came to, to realize how much, you know, how interesting, how different their body of work is to basically pick uh, an everyday object, a water tower. You look at this book, you never ever drive by a water tower in your life again without noticing it. You never look at water towers. They just basically are just there uh, everywhere. But after you've seen 300 of them, and then you start comparing them, some are in France, some are in Nevada, some are in Russia, so they're all over the world, and you, you start to like look at similarities, and they all have the same functionality, but oftentimes they're very different design, depending on how old they are. So that kind of stuck with me, and um, I uh, had a... Um, I was always kind of like very um, humanitarian interested, so this, the work of... August Sander uh, interested me because this man who came from very wealthy uh, background photographed uh, beggars, homeless people, uh, much more lower class people than himself at a time when that wasn't very common to do. You know, you basically just photographed people that were in your, your class. And um, that idea of photographing people from all different backgrounds uh, was another element that let me, after I left Annie, to photograph people on the street. I would put up a shower curtain on the side of a deli and just photograph homeless people, junkies, anyone who would walk by. I would just photograph one Polaroid for myself so I could write down their name. One Polaroid I would give to them. And then, so in the beginning, they just got a Polaroid out of it because I had no money. Um, later on, I gave everybody, I think, $5 or $10. So I photographed 
a lot of people on the street like that. And I forgot all of my friends. I, um, my first project was I set up these two really soft lights because influenced by the backers, I thought like a really neutral light that kind of doesn't make you think about the way these pictures are lit. And photographed all of my friends with an eight by 10 inch camera, which is this big uh, sheet film camera, incredible quality, like very much detail. And uh, my female friends weren't allowed to wear any makeup. Everybody had to pull the hair back, very German, very static. <laughs> I, I measured everybody's uh, eye height, so I could bring the camera in proportion to their face to the same level, so it was this idea of, I basically turned people into water towers, if you will. <laughs> and um, I spent countless hours in the darkroom to make the backgrounds and everything perfect, and I came to realize how hard it is to photograph, you know, even in the same setting, for some reason, the backgrounds change, the colors change, the tonalities, everybody's skin tone. And then I put a book together with all these like very stark, nobody was allowed to smile. I had so little money that I could only take one frame each person. <laughs> it was like $10 per sheet and then the processing another $10. So nobody was allowed to smile and very stark. And I was a little bit surprised that nobody hired me. <laughs> I was a little bit, don't they get it? This is genius. <laughs> um, so a couple of those, you know, and then going to magazines and showing pictures of junkies didn't go over that well either. Um, so it took a, quite a while uh, for me to get my first assignments, I would say about two years. I also did, a, in that time I did a journalistic story on a police department in Newark, New Jersey. A friend of mine had the assignment for People Magazine to photograph a detective there. So um, this was my first uh, foray in what is called an American ghetto. Um, I mean, I've seen them kind of driving by, but really being in it and seeing a whole street in Newark, New Jersey, where every other building is still burned out from the 70s, was for me from Germany uh, quite a shocking experience. <laughs> and the cops driving around with shotguns and machine guns in their back seat, I thought, hmm, this could be interesting. So I called the um, public relations person of the police department and said, I you know, would like to do a story for a German magazine, which was kind of a lie in the sense that I, <laughs> I wasn't really on assignment, but um, I thought if I take good pictures, maybe somebody's going to publish them. So he uh, introduced me to these two detectives, the Baker brothers, two twins, both about 300 pounds. And uh, they were very nice guys. They would oftentimes fall asleep on the job, but uh, I have many pictures of them sleeping at their desk. Um, and um, I just befriended them and everybody in the robbery squad. I never went back to the public relations officer. Nobody cared. And I was just there hanging out in a robbery squad. Then I met the people from the homicide squad. Then I was in a, then they introduced me to somebody from the auto task force. Then I was in car chases. And I thought, yeah, not, you know, this is kind of, yeah, why not? But looking back now, it was quite dangerous. Um, um, going over 100 miles at night through a small urban street in a car chase. And in, in, in often at times, the police cars were so badly maintained one of the police cars had a wooden stick that was holding up the driver's seat. Um, some of them had like always a flat tire and it was, um, yeah, it was an adventure. But I took all these pictures, told a friend of mine who was a writer about it, then he came out, he couldn't believe it. He said he's been working in America for 15 years as a writer and he's never had that much access that any police department would allow you to just hang out there. Uh, I photographed cops beating up a prisoner even, um, so it was quite a, and the guy deserved it, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> he stole the car at gunpoint and then got arrested two hours later. 
and then just started kicking and, and punching everybody, spitting in people's face. It's maybe, you know, at some point everybody loses their temper. Um, yeah, so, and then I always, you know, I kept on doing that work, and then I kept on doing these portraits. Long story short, then I got the first assignments. Then I broke up this style of these, like, very stark 8 by 10 portraits, and I allowed for more emotion. I came up with a different lighting technique, which I'm still using today, um, that emphasizes, it still has the idea of a very flat, neutral light. There's almost no shadows in the face, but uh, that really brings out the eyes. And what I came to realize with these 8 by 10 portraits, uh, amount of detail, it just became all about the technique. You just were so shocked by all, I mean, you, th you think you see all the pores here, but if this was an eight by 10 picture, you'd be in shock. You really see literally like every little hair, everything. So these are photographed with a medium format camera, which is a much smaller uh, film format. And with these much more forgiving lights, these are um, fluorescent, light bulbs, basically, that are balanced for color temperature, so they don't have that green cast to them. And um, there's a lot of light coming from underneath, which really brings out uh, the eyes, which is what I like about this lighting technique. And then in the dark room, I often have to darken down the neck and the chin, the forehead, because you, know, uh, you have to dodge and burn a lot later. And uh, yeah, and then I started getting my first assignments. Uh, one of my first jobs was to photograph um, Vanessa Redgrave for Time Out magazine in New York. And um, back then I thought, oh, I do all these other setups too, but being a photographer for magazines is so oftentimes so limited with where you take the picture, how much time you're getting, that I always felt like no matter what else I do, these close-up portraits, I really truly my own. You know, the, the person can't escape anywhere. It's not about the clothes. It's not about the environment. It's like, in a sense, really truly a, what a portrait is about, just about the person rather than about all these other aspects. Um, so, after I had taken one or two of these close ups, all the magazine editors look at every other magazine. All of a sudden, everybody wanted to have these close up portraits. And then after being on my own for two years, um, things went crazy. A little bit overwhelmingly <laughs> crazy because I got so many phone calls all of a sudden. And that was all about 1999. Um, I also did a job for, uh, back then for the New Yorker magazine. Uh, I photographed Tony Hawk. And my other body of work that is not these close-up portraits, these environmental portraits are more I try to always have a little bit of a twist, uh, a little bit of a story and a twist to them, being from this journalistic background. So I had Tony Hawk jump off his kitchen table while his son is eating breakfast and his wife is cleaning out the dishwasher. And um, everybody at the New Yorker was like falling over and loved it so much that in 99 or 2000, they offered me a contract. So I've been a staff photographer for them ever since. Um, yeah. Maybe somebody has a question in between. <laughs> what is the rectangular shape that you see in the pupil? Yeah, these are, these are the lights. You know, whenever you see a portrait, you see the reflection of the lights in the pupils. If I you know, took a picture of you here now, I would see a couple spots from this. These are basically these light banks that are set up to light. Uh, they're used for lighting. Yeah, so these close-up portraits, so what happens today is a magazine calls me up Thursday, I photograph Flint Eastwood. Um, I would do one of my close-up portraits. I always do that, and then I do something else that maybe is better for the magazine or something environmental or something that um, 
you know, has a different purpose. Um, always trying to take a picture that I like, um, but um, sometimes you have to make little compromises. If a person doesn't like their picture, do they have any say in, you know, mm. they're going to say, oh, no, 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 this picture is not coming out? Yeah. No, uh, th th there's one other photographer that I want to mention between the Beckers and Aldo Sander is that uh, what I learned from Richard Avedon's work is, looking at Richard Avedon's work, is that it seems like he never cared what his subjects thought about the pictures. His pictures are oftentimes what many would say kind of harsh, uh, not very flattering. I have a feeling he would have photographed me and I would have come off uh, looking like a mental retarded person. Um, so, which is like kind of courageous, you know, which has been lost in modern day photography, the sense that you should take a picture that you feel is closest to what this person about is about rather than trying to make them look good. If you look at modern day magazines like Vanity Fair or Vogue, I mean, people are hardly recognizable. <laughs> I mean, I've seen pictures of Angelina Jolie in Vogue, and I'm like, this doesn't even look like her. It's so retouched and so changed um, that with my portraits, I'm trying to stay a little bit closer to the truth and not. Um, One of the pictures that um, I find particularly fascinating, especially given um, current historical circumstances, is the photograph that you made of Barack Obama following the talk that he gave, that, that famous speech at the Democratic National Convention in 2004. And I believe that the photograph in the gallery is a variant of the photograph that was published in GQ where he's smiling. Oh, mm -hmm. And so I was just interested to know, as a photographer who's working between um, the editorial world and the fine art world, how do you make your decisions about which photographs um, get published in a magazine and which photographs you think might work better in a fine arts context? Well, the pictures you see here is other words I chose, and the pictures here in the magazine other words. Your right. thought process, and I realize that maybe with the magazines, the editors mm -hmm. are involved in those decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the magazine editor chooses their pictures for the magazines. Um, I basically use, I see it as I use the magazines as a vehicle to, uh, as somebody who finances and sends me out and gives me access to these people. You know, you can't just call up uh, Engineer Jolie and say, I want to take a picture. All these, all these pictures here, including the Piraha tribe, were done on assignment. Um, for various magazines. So a magazine would call up. Uh, Jack Nicholson has a new movie to sell, so he's willing to do a few. Actually, to be clear, uh, uh, um, <clears throat> an actor signs a contract when they get paid these insane amounts of money. And within this contract, it states they have to do a certain amount of publicity. So basically, they're getting paid to be photographed for magazines as part of the deal when they sign a contract to do a movie. Other people like musicians, they, you know, they only do photo shoots when they have a record coming out and they're most likely in magazines that um, you know, appeal to the audience that they're looking for. So um, that's how it works. It's literally a business transaction. That's how I see it. That's why I don't feel so responsible for making everybody look fantastic <clears throat> because they're all trying to sell something. Barack Obama tried to sell himself and McCain wanted to have some nice publicity. I think it was back for Men's Vogue. Um, maybe Cindy Sherman has at least interest in selling something, uh, or the Piraha don't either. But um, with the celebrity photo shoots, it's always a give and take. Um, I think three years ago, what does it say right next to the Piraha images? 
Uh, I was sent by the New Yorker to the Amazon to photograph a linguist um, who's been studying this language of the Piraha. It's a small, uh, very little contacted tribe on the Maitri River. And um, obviously, I brought my, my close-up uh, studio set up with me in the jungle, uh, which was a little bit of a challenge with generators and all the mosquitoes. It was like pretty hot and humid. Um, I actually came back with malaria. <laughs> so, um, but I, you know, I still love that grid. Uh, it's maybe the closest to this idea of these water towers. I mean, obviously, each person's personality shines through a lot more. But uh, to see the similarities of this one tribe that lives basically under trees along this river. My question is about this set. Since you're, you're obviously quite charming, if you can get into the police department is everywhere. But you couldn't speak this language. I, I brought so, donuts with me. Hmm? I brought donuts with me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but you probably had some, some communication. I mean, you did have to work mm -hmm. to get these amazing photographs, um, even, did you have an interpreter there as well? Yeah, it, it, actually it was very challenging. I was just for National Geographic magazine last year in Africa to photograph another tribe, and, it's, and they at least speak uh, Swahili, so I learned a little bit Swahili, so I could say, oh, chin up a little bit, or oh. try to be a little bit funny. Yeah. With this tribe, it was extremely difficult because they're monolingual, that means they only speak their own language. And there's only two outside people that speak any of their languages, is these two former missionaries. The husband became a linguist, and uh, his wife is still a missionary. Uh, his wife was there, and um, I had her like try to cheer them up. I mean, she lives with them, so she knows them really well. And I used her to, like, um, but she kind of didn't really want to help me that much because she's still a missionary, and she felt like funny that I was photographing them in the first place. So it was, uh, yeah, not easy. But I photographed probably three or four times as many, and then many of them didn't work out, and these are the ones I ended up with. You know, just, just if you take 100 pictures, you know, you get lucky with 10. <laughs> I always say if I take 10 really good pictures in a year, I'm happy. So I think that's a good. Going back to Jane's comment, if you were to take this photograph here, which is a fine art bent, that were to be put in the magazine, the New Yorker, how would that look different? Uh, you know, I think you would lose the, uh, how would it look different? I think um, it wouldn't look all that different, to be honest. I mean, I think, you know, depending if they put type over it and destroy it, it and print it horribly. Picture, and I can visually see it. Yeah. Martin, do you think the scale yeah, sure, the scale, the scale makes a big difference. I mean, the quality is also so much better in a print like this than in a magazine. I think you take more time looking at each image. In a magazine, you tend to just flip through the pages. You don't pay that much attention. But if you're confronted with an image in this size, you know, it's much more compelling and much more um, uh, engaging. Yeah. To help those who are, who want to be where you are. Well, I have uh, employees, you know, I have a full-time assistant 
or two, and then, you know, so those people I try to help after they leave, uh, they stay with me for a couple of years, five years, some of them don't want to leave ever. <laughs> um, and uh, so I help, obviously, those people. Then I use a lot of freelance assistants all over, you know, the country. When I'm in Los Angeles, I have a group of people there. So I look at their portfolios. I try to give them advice. They call me with the most silly questions all the time. So this is now sometimes more or less silly, but you know they call me when they had their first job and ask me for advice all the time. So in that regard, I'm very hands-on. Those are people that work with me. I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the experience of photographing Cindy Sherman as herself. Mm -hmm. A lot of us are used to seeing her taking on different guises mm -hmm. in her own self-portraiture. Mm -hmm. So what was it? What was it like just photographing? Cindy. Oh, she was uh, one of the, my nicest photo subjects ever. She, she let me come to her house. She cooked me coffee. She had a parrot sitting on her shoulder. So I took a lot of pictures of her with her parrot. And, uh, you know, since I always do these close-up portraits, I, I did one of her as well. And um, she, was, she just felt so open and vulnerable, um, considering that she's always disguising herself. She was a very sweet, nice woman. Yeah. Uh, these are all done with the Mamiya RZ, 6x7, film, camera. <laughs> and the, one, the two bodybuilders with an 8x10-inch camera. So basically, my, my goal with these close-up portraits, or you, if you look at my, uh, my book close-up, maybe the idea is also becomes a little more clear, to not only photograph uh, famous people or well-known people, just to like photograph basically everybody. My parents are in the book, my wife is in the book. I photographed uh, a woman that was sitting on an apple crate rocking back and forth uh, who was on crack. I put her right next to John Bon Jovi. So to, to find this like common humanity, a common trait that, that we all share, this like sense of vulnerability, looking for these like in-between moments. A lot of people look at these pictures and think, oh, you just told them to look serious. But if somebody looks serious, oftentimes, uh, all of the time, people are kind of disinterested looking, kind of out of it. So when I take these pictures, I constantly communicate with the people, I talk to them. These are basically all moments when they just stop talking or stop laughing. It's uh, these like in-between moments when people's facial expression hasn't been decided yet. You know, you just laugh and you don't quite know what to do next with your face. Um, where, you know, where people are kind of off guard, at least for a split second, and not thinking about being photographed. Um, that's my goal. And oftentimes, I photograph people. When I put my book together, I think 70 portraits in it. I had photographed three, 400, uh, 500 maybe subjects. But I could only find 70 where I felt I, I caught this special moment. Um, oftentimes, photographing especially actors or people that are being used to being photographed a lot, you think you're getting this moment, and you think this kind of feels like a genuine uh, frame while you're doing it. And then you look at the contact sheets later, and you feel like it was a complete act. They were just like doing their little thing, and, and you don't notice it until afterwards. Like George Clooney was one of them, where I felt like, oh my god, I got great pictures, and then later. So I couldn't even put him in my book. Or, I mean, I have now a picture from him that I took recently. but. Um, and I tried to do the same thing with the female bodybuilder series in the sense that I also let their personality shine through, but not in a too obvious, overwhelming way. So it has some, it feels a bit more, more honest in a sense. 
there is no such thing as, a, as an honest portrait. You know, I think every photograph is a lie, and I, uh, some of them lie a little bit less than others. You know, if you even think about journalistic photography, uh, so many famous pictures that we all know have been staged. Um, so, you know, it's just a question, how much do you want to stage, and how are you going to retouch the image like crazy? There's many magazine covers where the body of the person is not even their own body nowadays. You know, uh, Kate Winslet, I think, sued once, uh, I think it was English Esquire. They couldn't slim her down enough, so they put another woman's body on her head. <laughs> so this is what modern day, <clears throat> modern day magazine photography has become. And um, as soon as you work for a magazine, it's also kind of out of your control because they have the image and they do with it whatever they want. So. For me, it's just using the magazines as a vehicle to send me to basically take portraits, and that's what I do. Were you inspired by Richard Avedon, or was there anybody who inspired you in your Yeah, in different ways. You know, I don't think Richard Avedon's portraits are very... Um, I, I see myself as a much more uh, humanitarian photographer. You know, I, I think I'm, I'm much more softer, softer with my perception of people, and maybe I like people more. But I, I um, learned from him that uh, you know you shouldn't care about what the person that you photograph thinks about their portrait. You, you should just think about what you think of that person and how do I capture that. Thank you.